If you've ever watched Netflix's wildly popular show Queer Eye, you definitely know Jonathan Van Ness. Even if you haven't, it's hard to escape JVN's cultural influence. That hair is serving me Metallica 1991 Gorge. Get out of my face with that. That was two words I cannot handle. I love it. Don't forget to love yourself, girl. Along with his hair and skincare advice, Jonathan's known for his infectiously positive outlook, heartwarming vulnerability, and humor. And since Queer Eye's reboot in 2018, Jonathan hasn't stopped moving. He keeps up with his podcast and now a Netflix show, Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. He also has a YouTube channel and he's founded a hair care brand. And he's written two books. His first book, Over the Top, made news when Jonathan revealed his positive HIV status. And his most recent book picks up where Over the Top left off. Jonathan's newest book is called Love That Story, Observations from a Gorgeously Queer Life. After the break, we'll talk to Jonathan about his new book and so much more. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. We're talking with Queer Eye star Jonathan Van Ness about his new book, Love That Story, Observations from a Gorgeously Queer Life. He joins us from New York. Jonathan, welcome to 1A. Hi, how are you? I am doing well, and I am excited to talk to you. You start your latest book talking about your experience dealing with the press when you published your first book. And you struggled with having your HIV status published in an article before you were really ready. And you also write about reliving trauma you've experienced during interviews. But what made you want to write another book? It's because so much of how I processed my that those events um, with writing over the top, I processed through writing. Um, writing over the top had become this really cathartic experience of coming back to my thoughts and coming back to words and the art um, of writing and and of storytelling. And I had so many feelings and I had so many thoughts around that. And it, and it wasn't that, I mean, I, I was ready to talk about my HIV status. It's just that I talk about this in the opening of my new book, Love That Story. It just never occurred to me. It's things, you know, no one really prepares you for because like who really becomes like a public figure and then like goes on to like write a book and like all of the things that I've done. But it just didn't occur to me that like that article was going to come out before the book came out. Mm. So I was like, I was like, oh, someone else is going to tell my story kind of through their lens before mine, before I'm telling my story. And that just, that's part of it. That's how it works. There's nothing like sinister about it. That's just the way that it happened. And I just literally for it being my first time, didn't understand. And that was really hard. Um, And I think I also thought that writing the book was going to be the most difficult part. And I think I was, there was still some trauma in my body. There was still some um, feelings that were there. And I think, going back to that square one and retelling that story so often was um, a heavier lift than maybe I thought. But the writing of the book um, made me feel like it was healing. It was a healing experience. And so coming back for this book, I feel like writing is a healing experience. And also at the end of the day, I do feel like I'm an artist. And I feel like writing is an art. And it's one that I've been so lucky to get to incorporate and learn more about. And so ultimately I love that process. 
And I'm also like notoriously bad at doing things the first time. Like the first time I go around something, it's like, could have done that better. So now I understand like press and like timing and how that works. Well, uh, how, how are you thinking about your relationship with the press after that first experience? Because here in this book, you're you're very open about your life. Again, you you display a lot of vulnerability, and you're back in this this press cycle again. Sometimes I feel like I mean I come from a family of broadcasters. I I love consuming the news. I love um, reading. I love learning. I love you know, trying to, to make sense of the world around me. So I don't think that there's this like necessarily like evil, like press or something, or like, I don't like, I love journalism and journalists. And I think there's such a, it's so difficult to do what journalists do. And I respect it, you know, so, so much. And I also think that ultimately we live in this, you know, capitalistic society that like is going to reward the amount of clicks and like the amount of downloads. And so that is, and also even with my podcast, like I understand how the title is so important, like what you title that and how someone engages with that is literally your bread and butter. And there's still human, there's still a human price to pay for that sometimes. Mm. And so I think it's, you know, but that also kind of comes along with the territory. And I think that's ultimately like what I kind of realized was that like, you know what, now that I've lived it, I'm going to keep doing my best to tell stories and to understand the world around me and, and share that as I go, because it, the, the industry is, it is as it is. And I don't want to not have the experience of the vulnerability because I'm afraid to put myself out there. But has it made think- you, has it made you reconsider what, what, as, as your profile raises has it made you rethink what boundaries mean for you and and how they show up a hundred percent and um well some ways yes and no i mean as you have like more eyes on you and more people that like want to interact with you i feel like that has caused me to rethink some boundaries like around like like instagram and like messaging and um You know, like I I used to let like anyone message me and I would like read a lot of my messages. Like I don't do that anymore. And like I set this like cool filter on the gram where I have to follow you for you to message me or I have to have like talked to you before. Um, Right. And you can like mention me or something and I'll see it. But it's like it just really reduced how many people like send me things. And when you're getting unsolicited feedback or, you know, homophobic or transphobic harassment or just like mean spirited comments and you're like an empathetic person like myself, and you're a person in recovery like myself, who's like also sensitive and, you know, also still going through a life and adjusting to my life. It is a lot. So it has caused me to, to set more boundaries. But I think um, I once heard this thing from an old client who said, becoming famous doesn't change you. It makes you more of who you already are. Mm-hmm. And I want to stay that like vulnerable, open, curious, joyful person, no matter what happens, you know, like in my career. So figuring out how to stay connected to that and not um, become hardened because you do, you can, you can become hardened when, um, when your kind of humanity is taken away, which happens sometimes. Well, a couple of years ago, you came out as non-binary or gender queer, and just so people know, um, we were told he, him pronouns are fine. You, you're okay with all pronouns. Yes. In, in your book, you write, "quote I have never felt completely female or completely male, but somewhere in my own space, I have found the gender expression that feels authentic to me." End quote. What has that journey been like for you, and and where are you in that journey today? Yeah, I think I definitely identify as a non-binary person. I think 
I've always felt this way. I just didn't have language for it. And I've been so lucky in my life to have friends like my very dear friend, Alok, um, who got, who I got to have on my show and who's been on my podcast several times and who also helped me with this entire book, um, helped me read or read things for me and was like, yeah, that sounds good, et cetera. One of the most supportive, dearest friends in, in my life. And, and so I've always felt this way. I just didn't have language for it. And, um, and we talk about that in this, in this book. Um, but there's been a concerted effort through the ages really, um, to erase queer people and non-binary people. And, and so this idea that like non-binary people or trans people are new or like a new phenomenon is really far from the truth. And we've actually been having these conversations. If you look back in history for hundreds of years in different aspects, always in slightly different language, but the feelings were, have always been there. I just didn't understand the language around it until much later, like much after I'd become, you know, to so many people, JVN and like that guy from Queer Eye. So, and that's been a journey that I've been on publicly. And I think that so much of the suffering that we have is because of the violence and the judgment and the expectation that the gender binary instills. Um, and that is something that I really wanted, I'm, I'm really curious about. And I want us to be able to have more conversations around, because especially now there's so much vilification and scapegoating of trans and non-binary people um, that I think is really alarming. And we see the the spread of transphobia and the spread of intolerance and um, and how how intense it's getting right now. And I think we really have to ask ourselves, like, how did we get here? And that's a, a, a journey that we take in this chapter, or in one of the essays in this book. You also talk about your personal style and how femininity is often rejected in the gay community. How did you experience those biases as you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, I think from my earliest ages, and I talk about this in both of my books in different ways, but I always like wanted to wear like evening gowns with my cousins. I always wanted to wear tights. I always like um, was obsessed with sequins and like really just wanted to be like a fierce gown wearing person. And I was, you know, really like ripped out of those gowns from a very early age and was like told you, you cannot wear those gowns. Like there was like a strict no evening gown policy. Like when I was with my family and like with my girl cousins who had like the fiercest little girl dress up gowns you've ever seen, I like couldn't wear them. It's very devastating. Um, but I mean, the, this has always been something that's been within me. And so you know, first it starts at home. Then as you realize, um, or at least for me, I, I want to keep it to, you know, my personal experience. As I started to realize like, oh, there's people who I see in the world who success or who have successes, gay men, they just have to be like masculine gay men. And they need to like, and which obviously for me, like LOL, like how much could I ever really like masculinized myself? So, you know, but I did my best. Um, but you find that in dating, you find that just casually in the workplace and school and, and everywhere when you're a femme queer person, there's, a, you just, there's, you just face so much internalized or so much homophobia and transphobia. And they're obviously different phobias, but they're really interconnected, at least for me, because I am a non-binary person who's also queer. Um, so that, you know, that was, it was a lot because obviously our sexual orientation and our gender expression aren't the same thing. Um, but there's still a lot of those like conflicting phobias when you're a trans femme, um, non-binary person, especially in, you know, rural, more conservative places. I think so ultimately for me, what I kind of realized was this link between my need for validation um, from, you know, romantic and sexual validation from men. Um, and 
kind of contorting myself and dimming my expression and, and dimming how I wanted to present in the world to fit that more like cisgender look of that masculine look of what gay men kind of, or what I thought gay men wanted. And, um, you know, through years of, of healing and therapy and struggling with sexual compulsivity, at some point I realized that my happiness and my expression, um, was more important than, um, the validation. And I think that, um, you know, that validation for me was so fleeting and it was so, um, kind of hollow. Um, and so I think the, the benefits of what I felt from exploring my relationship with myself and really finding who I am as a non-binary person, um, help me heal so much. How did that, how is that connected to your journey with your, with your body, your physical body? Because you, you write about overcoming body issues and embracing more of a body neutrality approach rather than body positivity. Yeah, because we, because even if you're coming from a body positive place, it's like, you're still kind of equating like your worth on the way that your body looks. Cause there's all these like connotations about like what a body positive person like looks like. And really like we're all individual, unique, beautiful people that are worth celebrating and being interested in and, and have so many redeeming qualities and imperfect qualities um, that is so far past and more than what our bodies look like and what they can do it. I think it takes away our humanity and it also for people that dare to break the mold, um, people that we look at and think like, you know, it's like someone who's like body positive or whatever. The amount of times that someone, you know, says to me, what is like, is a well, in, it's like a well-intentioned comment, but it's like, you know, you're so brave or how do I find your confidence? Or, you know, I could never like dress like that. And it's like, why? Because like, there's, there's such a underlying feeling there of like, well, you know, if I looked like you, I would never mm-hmm. dress how you dress which is such a backhanded, like kind of hurtful thing. And it's like, how do you think that that leaves someone feeling like, thank God I'm in therapy and I'm a secure person. So it's like, I can take a lot of that, but there's those well-intentioned comments all the way to like, you know, cover up. No one wants to see that, you know, like to like much more villain, like mean, you know, so it's, it's all over that spectrum. And I just think that we have to stop equating our worth and like assigning labels to the way that people look because it just it's it takes away your humanity we're so much more than the way that we look so neutrality body neutrality for you it sounds like it's about just saying my body is it just it just is yes what advice do you have for people about finding that balance between what you want when you walk into the salon but also leaning into what your stylist, the professional, says will work best. Like maybe you've got an idea for a color or even a, a shape, and you're like, "This is what I want." And they're like, Ooh. <laughs> "That's a, that's a choice." <laughs> how do you how do you find that balance? Yeah, I mean, I think you can. The first thing that comes to my mind is like you can always second opinion it. Like you can always like go get a consultation with someone else if you think that the person's just not hearing you or like they're just afraid to do that change or like they don't have the time or something. So and that, you know, can totally happen. Um, I think that the other thing that we have to remember is that so often when we're pulling pictures from on the Internet or even on Instagram, really any photo like there is a huge amount of um, lighting, color correction, Photoshop, extensions, 
really, I mean, and sometimes, especially when you're pulling like celebrities uh, pictures, like the people who style that hair, like literally their day rate is like $5,000, like -hmm. just for them to come style that one person's hair. Plus there's like a couple thousand dollars worth of extensions in that head of hair. Plus like a world renowned photographer took that picture. Plus it was Photoshopped. And, like, you know, lighting experts, like, set up that studio for, like, hours to make it look like that. So, so often, the inspiration of what clients are pulling from isn't even a picture that's based in reality. Or, like, something that's even in a financial ballpark of, like, anything. It's like, yeah, your hair can look like that for, like, you know... It's in extensions, especially, and um, well, a lot of extensions, not all extensions, but a lot of extensions and the maintenance, it just, it's a lot more expensive. And then like Photoshop is a whole other thing. So understanding that like so much of the beauty industry is like smoke and mirrors and that the beauty industry isn't as a whole, a lot of times embracing realistic beauty expectations of like real people who have like real time and not like four hours for glam and like, you know, $5,000 for extensions and 5,000 for like, you know, a hairdresser. It's like, so just having like a better understanding of like a lot of the stuff that we're seeing is fake. And I did hair in LA for like 12 years. I can attest. It's a lot of it is just not what any of us have time for. I've been on camera now for like four years. I don't even have time for it. Like, so like, that's why you don't see me like with extensions. It's also why we're really passionate at JV and hair with like, sometimes that there's like a little bit of like a puffy eye or like if a little piece of hair isn't sitting right, like we might do that, but like, we're not massively changing people on like, I, and I really like try to keep actually, we've never had extensions on, a JVN hair. Oh, one time we did do a little bit of a little tiny bit just because I need a little bit more length. But other than this one time, we really don't do extensions. We keep it super duper natural because I, I think it's important to like make sure that people know they are so beautiful and we are so worth being celebrated. And if you want to do a ton of extensions and you want to do all that, I love that story for you. Go for it. Live your best life. But if you don't want to, that's also great. And you're also still allowed to feel beautiful and confident and and celebrate who you are. And that's that's really my goal with JVN hair and with with empowering people with that heading into their relationship with themselves. Cause you're already beautiful and you're already enough. And these like expectations around beauty have been so rigid and so tired. Um, yeah. So yeah. like, honey, like let's do us. Well, Danimal tweets, I have nothing to ask, just here to say I'm obsessed with the JVN hair products. I've told everyone about them and they smell amazing. My hair is so happy and so am I. Barbara tweets, love the newest season in Austin. You filmed at my son Tyler's salon, Hair House ATX. He and Tony had a blast. Hugs to you. And we also got this tweet that says, I have zero fashion sense as a man. What can I base my looks on? Any, any advice? We've got just about a minute or so before the break. Watch every single episode of Queer Eye and watch Tan. Like, you could almost even, like, fast forward, like, through all of our segments and, like, just watch Tan. Like, I think Tan is, like, Tan's who I want to be when I grow up. I'm so obsessed with Tan's style. I'm so obsessed with Tan's fashion sense. I'm also just so obsessed with Tan generally. Like, a Tan France, follow the gram, watch Next in Fashion, watch Tan's gorgeous show on Netflix. Um, It's so good. Just follow Tan France. You know, that's how we need to like follow Tan France. That's what I would say. And and, and then like, and then just be relentless about following Tan and you're going to find your personal style. <laughs> so you think that by watching someone else, you can actually find your way to your sense of style? I don't know. I was actually just like really obsessed with Tan and I miss him. So I felt like talking about um, him. Um, so I just like said that to be kind of funny. No, I think like, insp- I think, you know what it really is? I'm going to, I'll do it fast because I don't have much time. Taking risks. 
we have to like get out of our comfort zone and like you got to try it on to like figure out if you're going to feel good in it good in it or not so i think being adventurous taking a risk and knowing that fashion is self-expression it's fun it's also a form of art so indulge your artist indulge your creativity and you also are going to have to be comfortable with like people people might give you unsolicited opinions and it's not for them it's for us We'll be back with more from you and our guest in a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to our conversation with Jonathan Van Ness. And let's listen to another voicemail we got from one of you. Hi, I'm Caroline from Tallahassee, and I'd like to ask Jonathan... Who was his biggest influence when he was growing up? Thank you. Caroline, thanks for that question. Jonathan, who comes to mind for you? My mom, probably. Um, My mom has always been um, a hero for me, and she's someone who has... um, I think I, I found my resilience and my tenacity and my ability to be comfortable being kind of a a barrier breaker. My mom, I think, was such a barrier breaker in her career. Um, and so I think she just gave me a lot of strength and resilience. And so um, I think my mom is the first person. And then also, obviously, like Michelle Kwan, Rudy Glendo, like, you know, other major figure skaters of note. Um, but I think my mom was the first person that comes to mind. Mm. Well, here's another voicemail we got. This one came from Seth in Nebraska. 30 years ago this fall, I was a sophomore at a private Presbyterian college in the Midwest and had to move off campus when the hateful mail I'd been receiving turned into an actual physical threat. I was the first out gay student in the history of the school, and coming out was clearly not well received by some of my schoolmates as my dorm room was destroyed with a bucket of blue paint. This caused me to retreat back into the closet I had just come out of until a couple of years ago when RuPaul's Drag Race and Queer Eye nudged me back out of the closet and put me in touch with my hidden queerness. I wanted to thank Jonathan for giving me the nudge I needed to live as my authentic true self. You're just such a beautiful soul. Seth, thanks for that message. Uh, Queer Eye has been on now for six seasons, and it was a reboot from the 2003 show Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. What are your thoughts on how queer representation has evolved since you since you joined the show? I think that queer representation, I mean, we have more representation. It's and I think that we're having more queer stories told. Um, so I think that it's getting better. I think though what what I am more worried about is the lack of um the lack of correlation between representation and legislation. We are in a time where we are having unprecedented rises in anti-trans, um, anti-LGBTQIA plus laws um, rising in our country. And I think that because we are in such a polarized um, time where like asking questions, um, going outside of your own echo chamber is something that isn't often like championed or encouraged. Um, I think it's really disconcerting so, I mean, I think representation is growing and that's great. There's still a lot of gatekeepers. There's still a lot of gatekeeping. There's still a lot of lack of investment and promotion on queer-based projects versus their cishet counterparts. Um, so, look, it's getting better. It's not the best. It's still getting better. 
Um, but I think right now I'm way more interested and curious to get more information on like what is behind this increase of intolerance and, um, and scapegoating of LGBTQIA plus people in state legislatures. I'm more interested in that right now than I am about representation in Hollywood because representation in Hollywood is hopefully we see an increasing trend, but we have to have like conversations much closer to home. Well, Emmy tweets, I love JVM and am very supportive of my trans friends, both in and out of the military. I'm interested to know their opinion on having trans people compete in sports competitions of the gender they identify as. And this is something you you write about in in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that we have to let people play sports. Cheerleading was a really important thing for me. You still see me on my Instagram doing gymnastics all the time. My time in group sports and group activities helped me have some of the social um, opportunities and social experiences that have shaped my life and have made me into the person who I am. And what we're talking about here is little kids and middle schoolers and junior high kids and and high school kids who are literally children under 18 years old getting to just like try out for the golf team, the swim team, the volleyball team. I mean, there's, and in so many of these states where these anti-trans bills have been passed, like the legislatures can't even name an athlete who is currently, you know, even playing a trans athlete who's even playing sports in their state. So there's an, and, nationwide right now we see like one athlete who I think is an incredible trailblazer who I respect so much whose name I'm not even going to say because she's getting so much actually no I am Leah Thomas good for her we love her and she is getting so much hate and she's getting vilified so much for doing nothing other than playing by the rules working herself so hard being an incredible swimmer um and I think that the other thing that I would just have to say that my my friend Alok was telling me, and I just love Alok so much, but it's like sports inherently are unfair. If your parents are rich and they can ex- and they can afford a better coach, or if you live closer to the ice skating rink or the gymnastics place or the soccer field, if you live geographically in a place that's better for that sport. Also, there's issues of race and class as well. Like there are so many places and, and um, people who don't have access to sports, period. So sports on the whole, are already unfair. And I think what's a much bigger threat to women's sports is the lack of funding that women have in sporting, the lack of access to resources around advertising and meaningful money for professional female athletes. That's a huge issue to women's sports because professional athletes cannot get the deals and the, the, um, the livelihoods that their male counterparts can. That's what makes sports unfair. It's not trans athletes. And for the like two to 3% of the world that trans people consist of, and then the like, however minuscule percentage of those people, like we are not the reason for unfairness in sports. There are money, race, class, access, geography, parents, biology and also biology makes sports unfair because Michael Phelps, who I thought was, you know, so interesting to talk about, you know, weighing in on Leah's situation, Michael Phelps has been, I mean, he's like six foot, however tall he is. He has a wide, like the widest wingspan of all time, honey. He's like, he's like a human shark, you know, but that biological advantage is celebrated. Whereas in other people in trans people, it's vilified. If someone is super duper duper tall, they're going to be a really good volleyball player or basketball player, most likely. And that is a biological advantage that's celebrated. So I just think that 
when you look at trans people through history, and these stories date back hundreds of years, you can see trans people being spoken about in newspapers, in history, and textbooks for literally hundreds of years. And trans people have always been vilified as like, you know, sneaking something or like being, you know, fraudulent because they had the they had the audacity to break the gender role as has been prescribed very recently, I may add, since like, you know, the 17th, 16th, 17th, 1800s, as these gender roles have solidified. So people should be able to play sports. Um, people should be able to play elite sports. As long as trans athletes are adhering to the rules that those governing bodies are setting, they should be able to play. But that's really like, you know, elite sports, yes. And also, but, like, what about kids just being able to, like, try out for, like, their local JV team or, like, their local, like, high school team or, you know, their local cheer squad or their dance thing or whoever? Like, we shouldn't be ostracizing and bullying kids when there are so many huge issues. And we have the highest amounts of opioid-related deaths ever. And the headlines are dominated by, like, two trans people wanting to play sports in NCAA school. Like it's there's so many bigger issues that we have as a humanity, as people, than allowing people who are already marginalized to play sports. So I think that we really have lost focus on what on what what's going on. So there's the sports ban bills. We're also seeing legislation limiting access to gender affirming care for minors. And as someone who who lives in the non-binary space, what do you wish more people understood about? this issue? Well, I wish that people understood that, you know, when they say that, like, um, these, like, hormone blockers, for instance, they're prescribed for cisgender children all the time that are experiencing, like, precocious puberty, for instance. So if, like, if a little kid is starts to go through puberty when they're very young, they will, pers- and also it's used in, like, for performance-enhancing reasons, too, like, if, like, it's used in a lot of different sports, like, for cisgender kids, um, But if, and also hormone blockers are totally reversible. They're also endorsed by like every single major like medical academy. Like they're reversible. They're a really great tool because if a kid is experiencing gender dysphoria, it buys them time to not make any permanent decisions while they're kind of figuring out where they are and their family can prepare for whatever needs to happen for them healthcare wise and medically when they are adults and older. Um, Minors are not going through um, gender reassignment surgery. Like it's not a thing that happens. Hormone blockers, yes. Sometimes there may be hormones, but even that is also reversible and it's much more rare than hormone blockers. It's also like private medical information and nobody else's business that like the government should be insinuating itself in. I think that's such a chilling thing too. It's like these bills are inserting themselves in people, between people and their healthcare. And that is such a governmental overreach and is not, um, that's something that should really send everyone into like, oh, like this is such an intrusive uh, thing that these state governments are doing. So I think, and so there's that. And then the other thing I would say is that people like my friend Alicia Weigel, who I respect and look up to so much, she's an intersex activist in Texas. People who are born intersex, which we know is at least 2% of people, but it's a most likely like underestimated number. They are already having like hardcore gender reassignment surgeries from very early ages, like from infants to confirm and uphold the gender binary as we know it. So for the people that are born intersex, like gender reassignment surgeries, gender mutilation, those things are happening to kids right now in huge numbers as we speak 
but it's done under lock and key, closed doors, you know, when a child is born intersex, which happens in at least in 2% of the population. And people say, you know, well, 2%, that's not very many people. But then when you talk about a wealth tax, all of a sudden 2% becomes like so much, you know, like 2%, that's two out of a hundred. So think about two out of a hundred people and all their friends and all their family. Two out of a hundred people is a lot of people when you think about that there's seven billion people in the world. So people who are born intersex affects tons of people. And it's something we really have to think about when we're having this conversation. I'm going to read another email we got. This one came from Kevin. It says, this is Kevin from your hometown, Quincy, Illinois, writing to thank you for all you do and congratulating you on your career. Our PFLAG chapter, which is parents, families, and friends of lesbians and gays, is here is making plans this week to be in the Dogwood Parade. Maybe we'll see you sometime. This was a, a big part of the, the book, Jonathan, where you revisit your hometown, Quincy, and you wanted to explore the queer history there. What did you discover and why was this an important part of, of discovery for you? Well, I just tear up hearing that email because thinking about a P-flag chapter marching in the Dogwood Parade, which is a parade like I always looked so forward to as like a little kid. It's like such a big deal um, in Quincy. And so that just like warms my heart and that makes me feel so good um, to hear. Um, so good, in fact, that I like forgot about, oh yeah, Quincy's queer history. Um, (laughs) yeah. Um, yeah, I learned a lot. I mean, I think so often we approach queer stories and I experienced this in over the top. I felt like a lot of the coverage on over the top was really like gloomy and like the darkest headlines. It was like HIV positive survivor of drug addiction, like survivor of sex abuse. But I was like, what about all the hilarious stuff? What about all like the, you know, just like there's so much funny stuff that goes on in there too. And like, why can't we like, and, but there's this need to like cover like queer stories from this like negative lens or like, or just like a more like trauma based lens. And I was like, what about all the people that have just been like living their life, like, you know, creating joy, creating access, creating like spaces for queer people to thrive in that I haven't even heard about. Like, I want to hear like, uh, I want to, I want a love letter to queer history. I, I don't want these like the dark, like so much focus on darkness. I want like a love letter to queer history. And then I remembered this bar called Irene's Cabaret that I always used to like double take when I would walk past it. Cause there was like a rainbow and I was like, Oh my God, it's like that where my husband could maybe be someday. Like, I don't know what could happen. Like you never know. <laughs> um, but I wasn't old enough to kind of understand it. And then I got, you know, I ran for the Hills as, you know, as early as I could. And so I didn't really get to explore like, you know, my contemporaries and like people, you know, in their adulthoods and, and, you know, living in Quincy and, and people that made their lives there and people who also maybe made their lives there and made my life more possible and made my life more comfortable, um, that I didn't even know about. And so that was a really beautiful story. And I got to interview so many people and it was, it was really eye opening. And I also just have to say that I got inspired to do that essay from, um, this incredible Instagram account, LGBT history, And they were the ones originally when I interviewed on my podcast, they were like, you know, you're not the first one. And because I was, I was like, I was like, I think I'm like the first gay person from my hometown. I'm pretty sure I am. And they're like, actually, there's a lot of history and there's newspapers and there's, I was like, news, I love a newspaper. And so I think it's really actually kind of healing for queer people to, to get into history because it makes you not feel so alone. That's Jonathan Van Ness. He's the co host of Netflix's Queer Eye. And the new Netflix series, Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. His new book is called Love That Story, Observations from a Gorgeously Queer Life. Jonathan, thank you for speaking with us. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you all so much. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. 
This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.